Please take out a copy of God's Word and turn in it to John chapter 13. <clears throat> Forgive me for my voice. I'm sorry you're stuck listening to a frog this morning. Have mercy upon me. Pray for my voice. Page 900 in the Pew Bible, John chapter 13. Looking back, leaving behind chapter 12, I am tempted to be sad. But then, oh, chapter 13. Clearly, one of my favorite chapters in the whole Bible, along with chapters 14 and 15 and 16 and 17. These are five of the most precious chapters in Scripture. We know that John's gospel is unique and somewhat different from the other three. Calvin put it like this, all of them had the same object in view to point out Christ. The other three exhibit his body. If we may be permitted to use this expression, John exhibits his soul. This gospel is a key to open the door for understanding the rest. And these chapters are the key to open the door for understanding the rest of John. For these chapters in particular, not found at all in the other gospels, taking up a fourth of John's gospel, covering only a few hours of Christ's life, but in them... Thomas Goodwin says, we have a very window into Christ's heart. This is what Christ is like. And it all starts with having loved his own who were in the world. He loved them to the end. So the whole thing starts with love. So lots of love today. I say it a lot. I love to say it. But there are few things more loved, yet more misunderstood than love Itself. Everyone loves love. Few know what love really is. Uh, you've heard of the book, the, the Five Love Languages, right? If everyone's heard of that, it's a bestseller. Don't be offended if you love the Five Love Languages, but I don't really love the Five Love Languages. I don't really believe in them. It's somewhat of a silly and overly simplistic idea, and it's potentially dangerous. The idea is kind of like, here's how I demand to be loved. And if you don't love me in the way that I demand, it doesn't really count. It can be very self-focused when the very heart of biblical love, as we're about to see, is other-focused. So maybe focus not on how you demand to be loved in a certain way by someone else, but on how you can love others and receive love from others however they provide it. So it's maybe not the best idea. But if I did have a love language, it would be books. Of course, right? So if there's at least, if there's love languages, there's at least six love languages. Number six is books. And few people have loved me more in my particular love language than our dear departed Lydia Rad. Lydia died, departed out of this world to the Father back on September 7th, 2021. And I think of Lydia almost every single day. I have said before that I selfishly believe that the Lord brought Lydia to us specifically for my benefit and that the Lord specifically took Lydia from us specifically for my benefit. We live increasingly in a culture of cynicism and criticism and complaint, and that increasingly is the case in churches. Lydia, oh, she was the consummate encourager and consistently content. She was twice my age. She was wiser than me. She was godlier than me, probably from better and healthier churches than here, probably with a better pastor. And yet all she did was help and encourage and serve and pray. And I miss Lydia. 
But I can never forget her in part because I'm constantly surrounded by her books. I have never counted specifically, but she blessed me with over 100 books uh, towards the end of her life. But we're talking about her this morning specifically, and I've been waiting for this for over a year because the very last book that Lydia gave me was this book. The last time that I went there, she made sure I got this one book from her. This is James Montgomery Boyce. He was the pastor of 10th Pres in Philadelphia, a big famous church. And it's his commentary on John chapters 13 through 17. And Boyce titled this section, his book on this section, Peace in Storm. Lydia was a very organized person. I've learned much about her from her books. I found prayer requests for some of you in her books. I have found things about her in her books, but she always in the back, she had a little, always has a little sticky note in the back, the date she ordered the book, the date she received the book, the price, and everything. She's very, very organized and detailed. But this one tells me that she received this book on June 24th, 2021. Only about two months before her death, not long before she was not in the condition to do much reading. This would have been one of the last books that she ordered and that she read. And as she was in the last great storm of her life, she was reading Peace in Storm. And she was reading about the very chapters that we are beginning this morning. Uh, Chapters in which Boyce, in his introduction, calls the best known and most loved words of religious instruction ever uttered. Nowhere in the entire Bible does the child of God feel that he is walking on more holy ground. You see, as as Christ speaks out of the peace that he possessed, as he approaches his great storm, he's preparing and teaching his disciples how to find peace in the storms that are to come. Lydia found much peace in the brutal storm of devastating cancer, and she found it in the loving Lord revealed in these chapters. The glorious servant revealed in these chapters. So let's look at the one in whom we too can find such peace even in such storms. Jesus dies tomorrow morning. We still have half the book to go. We will still be over a year in John. Yet Jesus dies tomorrow. Only a few hours remain in his life. And this is the opening act of the story of Christ's death. Here Jesus teaches his own, his disciples, and us. Here he prays for his own, his disciples, and us. And as we are seeking to move Christ more to the center of our attention and to the center of our life, these chapters can greatly help us to do that. For it's as we increasingly see him for who he is, as he reveals himself, especially here, that our affection is stirred for him, which arrests our attention even more and more to him. And especially as we open, it is the revelation of his love for us that stirs our love for him. It's the revelation of him here as the servant, the glorious servant that draws us to him. So next week, we'll start in in verse 12, and we're going to focus on us, and we're going to apply this to us. But this week, we want to focus almost entirely on him and what this reveals to us about him. Let's see if we can get through four things. I had five, 
but I am merciful to you, so I removed uh, one of them. I want you to see the glory of Christ. That's, that's the goal. Who is this Christ? How glorious and good is he? See it in these four things. See it uh, through the revelation of the servant's love, through the revelation of the servant's omniscience, through the revelation of the servant's sovereignty, and then we're going to close especially, and we want to see the servant's Humility. Love and humility seem to go together. Omniscience and sovereignty seem to go together. We need to see how all four of these things come together beautifully only in Christ. And in all that we're about to see, let's not forget chapter 14, verse 9. Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. This is what God is like. This is God revealed in the glorious servant Jesus Christ. So you probably know this story well, but pay attention. It's one of the most beautiful stories in Scripture, one of the best illustrations and examples and demonstrations of God's love for us. Let me read it for you, and then we will continue. John chapter 13, we're going to start in verse 1. We're going to stop in verse 11. He'll turn to apply it in verse 12. Let's save that for next week. So John 13, verses 1 through 11. Pay attention. This is what God wants to say to you today. Now, before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. During supper, when the devil had already put it into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands, and that he had come from God, and was going back to God, rose from supper. He laid aside his outer garments and taking a towel, tied it around his waist. Then he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel that was wrapped around them. He came to Simon Peter, who said to him, Lord, do you wash my feet? Jesus answered him, What I am doing you do not understand now, but afterward you will understand. Peter said to him, You shall never wash my feet. Jesus answered him, If I do not wash you, you have no share with me. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, not my feet only, but also my hands and my head. Jesus said to him, The one who has bathed does not need to wash except for his feet, but is completely clean. And you are clean, but not every one of you. For he knew who was to betray him. That was why he said, Not all of you are clean. If you would, let's pause, let's pray, let's ask for God to help us in this time. Father, what a word, what a wonderful word of revelation of who you are, of your heart towards your people. Father, give us the eyes to see it and the ears to hear. Father, I pray that you would be strong in my weakness. I pray that my voice would no way distract from your word. Uh, make Christ clear to us, show us Christ. Father, arrest our attention, increase our affection, help us to see his great love. And we pray that you would use that to give us a great love for this Jesus. Father, apart from you, we can do nothing in this time. So please help the preaching and teaching of your word. And we ask this in the name of Jesus. Amen. All right, so point number one, we start with the servant's love. What an opening to part two of the book. What a beautiful context in which to situate all that follows, he loved his own, he loved them to the end. 
Again, that one verse should really get a whole sermon. But the whole of chapters 13 through 17 are in a sense an exposition and application of Christ's love for his own. They are so dripping with Christ's love for his own that we're going to have ample opportunity in the coming months to consider this again and again and again. But the Passover has arrived. Remember, John uh, has been structuring his whole book in large part around the various Jewish feasts and festivals. This is Jesus' third and final Passover. And there's all kinds of, of symbolic weight conveyed in the fact that all that is about to happen is happening in the context of the Passover. And so we've got love and we've got Passover. And verse 1 tells us also that Jesus knew that his hour had come. That is his hour to depart, to die. Literally. Again, his death is only a few hours away. This is Thursday evening. He's going to spend these few hours with his disciples. Judas is going to depart at the end of this chapter. He's going to go into the garden. Judas is going to come. Jesus is going to be betrayed and arrested, tried early in the morning and crucified only a few short hours from now. So we've got Passover. We've got love. We've got death. And all of this in some way has something to do with his own. And here we have one of the indications that John is transitioning us from one part of the book to the next. John's focus is now shifting because Christ's focus is now shifting to his own. Context. This is now Christ's crowd, for he has left the crowd. Remember back in 1236, here was the end of Jesus' public ministry. When Jesus had said these things, he departed and hid himself from them. And so we have now transitioned from public ministry to private ministry, from Jesus teaching the crowds to Jesus teaching only the disciples. And it is hugely and eternally significant that when Christ turns to focus on his disciples and instruct them on what they most need to know before his betrayal, arrest, and crucifixion, he focuses almost entirely on love. He focuses first on his love for them, which goes on to generate their love for him and then their love for one another. We'll see verse 34 in a few weeks. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. But it starts here. Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. And so the point is that when he turns to and focuses on his own, he turns to and focuses on his love for his own. As he is now speaking exclusively to his own, to his disciples. He is not speaking to the crowd. He is not speaking to the world here. And he is not speaking of his love for the world. Notice that he himself makes this distinction. We miss this distinction to our own peril, having loved his own who were in the world. So again, here's two sets. Here's two groups here. We have his own and we have the world. And 40 times in these five chapters, we're going to read that word world. One of John's most important themes, one of John's most misunderstood themes, but the word in John never means what many try and argue it always means. Everyone who has always lived ever, right? All men without exception. That's not, that's simply not how John ever uses that word. 
It's used, especially in these chapters, to draw a sharp contrast between Jesus' own, his disciples, in contrast to those who are not his own. The crowd, the lost, the world. So the object of God's love in these chapters is not the lost world, but the people of God being created by the coming death of Christ. He loved his own to the end. That necessarily implies that whatever this love is, he didn't do this thing for those who are not his own to the end in this same way. In 17.9, at the end of these five chapters, we'll hear Jesus say, I am not praying for the world, but for those whom you have given me, for they are yours. And so I'm, just, I'm setting aside and ignoring and not getting into the question of God's general disposition toward the world right now. I'm just ignoring that. But what I am getting into and what we must emphasize is God's precious, particular love for his own. It's been put like this before. God has done some things for all men. God has done all things for some men. He has done some things for all men. He creates all men. He sustains all men. He providentially uh, provides for all men and so on. But for some, for his own, he loves them to the end. And it is here that we are hopefully helped by our repeated attempts to try and rightly define and understand love. It is more than a feeling. Boston, 1976. Love seeks the good of the loved. Love is an active, other-oriented seeking of that other's good. Love seeks the good of the loved. True love seeks the true good of the loved. Ultimate love seeks the ultimate good of the loved. Which is what? Jesus is going to tell us. Chapter 15, verse 13. Greater love has no one than this. That someone lay down his life for his friends. 1 John 4, 9 and 10. In this the love of God was made manifest among us. That God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. In this is love. Not that we have loved God but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Romans 5, 8, but God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. This is how he loved his own. He loved his own by laying down his life for his own. He was sent by God to be the propitiation for our sins. Christ died for us. You need to know that that specifically applies to you as his child. This is what God's love does. And this is what God's love does only for those who are his own. We just read it in Psalm 5. Over and over again, the Psalms are drawing our attention to the great distinction between the righteous and the wicked. We do everything we can to collapse this distinction these days. We're offended by this distinction. The Psalms are all about it. Psalm 5, verse 4. For you are not a God who delights in wickedness. Evil may not dwell with you. Paul takes Psalm 5 and the description of the wicked and the evil and then applies it to everyone in Romans chapter 3. It's not just the excessively bad. All have sinned. All are the wicked that God does not delight in and evil, uh, the evil that, God, that may not dwell with him. How then can anyone dwell with him and come into his presence 
and live. None is righteous. How can anyone be with the righteous God? David tells us in verse 7, But I, through the abundance of your steadfast love, will enter your house. That's the first use in the Psalms of one of the biggest, best, and most beautiful Hebrew words in the whole Old Testament. God has said his, his steadfast love or his loving kindness or probably best translated as his covenant love or his covenant faithfulness. Life is relationship. Anthony walked through this in Sunday school. Covenant is all about relationship with the God of life. Covenant is about communion with God. Covenant is the only way that sinful man may dwell with holy God. The only way anyone can enter into his house. And David tells us there that it's grace. It's grace alone, as we just sang, that sends the Son to die to deal with the sin which is death. That's what God does for his own. Everything that must be done for them to return his own to his communion and fellowship and relationship. That is how he demonstrates his love to the end. And that's what this whole opening episode is about. Before speaking to them about his love, Jesus is showing to them his love. Before the explanation, he here gives the illustration. This is what love looks like. This is a small picture of what I am about to do for you. The glorious servant is revealed in the love of the servant. The serving, sacrificing, saving love. Having loved his own, he loved them to the end. And all that follows in this gospel is part of that never-ending love to the end. So that applies to them and to all of us who are in Christ by God's grace. This is all over Romans 8, verse 31. If God is for us, who can be against us? Well, no one, because he loves us to the end. Verse 32, he who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Verse 35, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? No one, nothing, because he loves us to the end. If you are in Christ, the beloved Son, with whom the Father is well pleased, the beloved Son to whom the Father can act in no other way than love, then you too, toward you too, the Father can act in no other way than love. For you too, in Christ, are beloved of the Father. Do you know and understand and rejoice and rest and live in light of the fact that God does not, hear this, God does not and cannot act towards you in any other way than love. Love seeks the good of the loved. Romans 8, 28. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. That's the love. All things for good. All things ultimately an expression of God's love. For his own. Do you know and believe that all that God does, he does for you ultimately out of his great love for you, ultimately in pursuit of your highest good? In Christ, you have never experienced anything that is not ultimately an expression of God's love for you. What would change? 
How would your life be different if you truly believed that all that is done to and for you in the great sovereignty and power of God is ultimately done to and for you in and out of love? Again, we know it doesn't look like love sometimes. We know it doesn't feel like love sometimes. But our perspective is very small and very limited. His is very big and very perfect. Our perspective is now. His perspective is never to the end, never ending to eternity. And so what looks like us and feels like us bad sometimes, stepping back in eternity, we're going to say, oh, whoa, look at how good this God is, that that thing that looked like the worst thing, he actually wove into what turned out to be the best thing for you. God cannot act toward you in any way other than love if you are in Christ, his beloved son. Well, what a promise. I don't know about you, but how much of our life are we still living as if we are our own? 1 Corinthians 6, 19, you are not your own, for you were bought with a price. He loved his own in a precious and particular and unique way. What a blessed identity this is. We are his own. We have his own name. We are his own uh, brothers and sisters. We are his own sons and daughters, his own disciples, his own sheep, his own friends. We are his. Right? Root your identity in that possessive pronoun. You are his, his own, loved as his very own. Everything that follows is situated under this umbrella. God's glory is revealed in Christ's love for his own. And that's how these whole wonderful five chapters begin. Point number two. Let's consider the servant's omniscience. I probably should have just gone with the servant's knowledge, but I want it to feel bigger. I want our focus to be on point one and four. Points two and three can be quick. But if we can see these inside two points for what they really are, the outside points, the love and the humility should be all the more amazing to us. I want you to consider Christ's love for you in light of what Christ knows about you, which is everything. Back to the text. Why omniscience? Well, look at how much John emphasizes what Jesus knows. Back to verse 1. We read there, when Jesus knew that his hour had come. His hour is his death. How did he know that? Do you know that? Do you know the hour of your death? You do not. Again, that is a good thing. We don't want to know. Jesus knows. Here is a supernatural knowledge. Look at verse 3. Jesus knowing that the Father had given all things into his hand. We'll come back to that one in our next point. Skip to the end. Look at verse 11. For he knew who was to betray him. So three times, short text, no knowing knew. Why? Why emphasize this? Well, first off, we're being reminded subtly of who this servant really is. The deity and the divinity of the servant is again being highlighted. John has been doing this throughout his book. God gave us the gospel of John in part to make the deity of Christ clear and undeniable. It's the very first verse. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. 
Verse 14, the word took on flesh and dwelt among us. That is God. And we have seen his glory. Uh, Verse 18, no one has ever seen God. The only God, that is the word, the son, Jesus, he has made him known. All right, so words convey knowledge. Words reveal persons. Jesus conveys the knowledge of God and reveals to us the person of God. And as God, he must possess perfect knowledge, which he demonstrates throughout the book. In 148, he meets Nathaniel. He reveals something about Nathaniel. And Nathaniel says, well, how do you know me? Jesus responds. And then Nathaniel cries out, Rabbi, you are the son of God. Based entirely on Christ's knowledge. 224, remember, tells us that Jesus doesn't believe in the false belief of the crowd. Because he knew all people. He knew what was in man. He demonstrates this in 4.17 with the Samaritan woman as he rehearses her whole sordid romantic history. You're right. You haven't had a husband. You have one, two, three, all these. You've had all these men. 6.64 tells us, For Jesus knew from the beginning who those were who did not believe and who it was who would betray him. 16.30, the disciples will say, Now we know that you know all things. Jesus knows Everything. And back to our text. Notice that the first thing it says is that Jesus knows that he is going to die tomorrow. What do you do if you find out that you've got a couple hours left to live? Probably despair to some degree. You probably complain. And you scramble a little bit to get your affairs in order. I wouldn't mind one last cookie. An Emily burger. FaceTime my family. Maybe I'd send you all one last Woodside Weekly Word, because you love them so much. Um, Then I would uh, cuddle up on the couch with my wife and girls, which is my favorite place in the world. We have bucket lists. We have things we want to and hope to experience. Here we're seeing Jesus' bucket list. He finds out he's about to die. His focus, others. What they need and what they must experience. We would have a temptation to turn inward. We're seeing Christ turn inward. Outward. He knows that he's about to die. And he disrobes, gets low, and washes some smelly feet of some not-so-great disciples who he knows are going to abandon him and deny him. He knows what is coming, and he continues loving. He knows what he is about to suffer unimaginably, and he loves his disciples unimaginably. See his knowledge his knowledge of what it was going to cost him, and see his love in spite of that cost, and be comforted and compelled by that love. He knows you. I don't know you, and you don't know me, for being honest with ourselves. And that's a good thing, because we're all awful. He knows us perfectly, and he loves us. That should bring us great comfort. His knowledge of us in the context of his love and his grace towards us should give us great encouragement. But notice one other thing. His knowledge should also warn us. Judas. We'll get a whole sermon focusing on Judas when we get to verse 21. But for now, what a warning is given to us here in Judas. What a sobering reminder of last week of the importance of getting faith right and of actually believing, biblically believing into, onto Christ. Because everyone thought that Judas believed. 
Everyone would have looked at Judas. And they gave him the money bag. You don't get the money bag to the shady looking guy. They gave him the money bag. They would have all looked at him and counted him as one of Christ's true disciples. Verse 2. The devil had already put it into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him. This is not absolving Judas of responsibility. Maybe we'll sort this out more in verse 21. But what this is doing, it's highlighting the truly satanic nature of what it is that he is about to do. Have you ever noticed something? The other Gospels? Tons of demons and exorcisms and, and all those things. John's Gospel? None. Not a one. Why? I don't know for sure, but I assume it's probably to emphasize and highlight this. This is the force and focus of all of Satan's activity. This is the truly demonic. This is the truly anti-Christ. In John, all supernatural and satanic evil is centered here on Christ, Satan's grand scheme to betray and crucify the Christ. I, like, it's October. I really do dislike Halloween. I've never understood it. I think it's especially weird when adults really get into it. That's just weird. Uh, if kids want to put on costumes and they're cute and they want to get candy, fine. Uh, but there are aspects of it that make me uncomfortable. But it's easy to get caught up in the weird and the spooky and the creepy and the dark and associate that. Look, that's what's. That's satanic. When in fact, that which is truly satanic is that which, whatever it is, opposes Christ and draws people away from Christ. He is the light. Darkness is anything that is, that is against him. And such darkness can manifest itself in many different ways. Here it manifests itself in betraying him. But the point I want us to see is that no one saw this coming. Judas didn't have little red horns. He didn't levitate when he slept. He wasn't creepy or spooky. And I think Satan very smoothly distracts us with silly things. Like, oh, this, is, this is what this would be like. When it's actually very different other things that are most satanic. When Jesus says that one of them is going to betray him in verse 21, the disciples are like, what? They have no idea. They're not like, ah, oh, Judas, it's got to be Judas. I know it's him. No, they had no idea. And they gave him the money back. Maybe Matthew, the tax collector. Peter's a more likely candidate than Judas. They didn't know. For they could not see the heart. Jesus knew. For Jesus can see the heart. Be comforted and be warned by his knowledge and his omniscience. Jesus knows who is a Judas. Not all who profess to follow Jesus are truly his own. Some who profess to follow Jesus turn out to be truly his enemies. Many who participate in the outward rituals and symbols of Christ are still dead and unwashed in their hearts. Judas had sat under his teaching for three years. He was with Jesus for three years. We assume when Jesus sent out the apostles to, to, to teach and to preach and to perform miracles, we assume that Judas did it as well. Think about this. Here, Jesus washes Judas' feet. When Judas goes out in verse 30 to betray Jesus, he walks to the religious authorities on feet washed by Christ. 
but with a heart entirely unwashed by Christ. Don't make the eternal mistake that Judas makes. Don't come here on occasion. You cannot have a passing connection to God's people. You just can't. You can't. You can't enjoy the benefits of sitting under His Word, enjoy some sort of at least connection uh, to God's people, enjoy singing some songs and feeling a little bit better about yourself, getting your kind of religious moral shot in the arm. Uh, Don't do all those things and not repent and believe. And lay down your sin and yourself and allow yourself to be washed by this Christ. Don't let your pride and your focus on your own glory, the pursuit of your own pleasure, prevent you from coming to the one who is glory and pleasure and joy and life itself. Judas was lost eternally. No one was more privileged than Judas. Judas loved himself more than he loved the Lord. Who do you love? Have you truly come to this Christ in repentance and faith and allowed your sinful soul to be washed by His blood? Don't make the mistake of thinking that you can fool the one who knows everything. You can fool me. You can fool Mike. We can fool one another. We cannot. We all stand naked before the God of perfect knowledge. See the glory of the servant in the omniscience of the servant. He knew he was going to die. He knew he was going to be betrayed. But he also knew one other thing. Point number three. He is the sovereign servant. You getting tired of sovereignty yet? I hope not. It's foundational. It's beautiful. It's who our God is. I won't hammer it today. This will be the shortest point three I've ever had. I only want you to see this. I only want to use this to get us to and further highlight point four. Go back to verse three. We skipped the second thing that Jesus knows. Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he had come from God and was going back to God. Stop. How would you complete that thought? Knowing that the Father had given all things into his hand. You'd expect something like the transfiguration. Some sort of like pulling back of the curtain and this this grand display of his power and of his glory and of his majesty. Because that's what we do. When we're great at something or we accomplish something great, we draw attention to it, to ourselves. We post about it. Look at me. See my greatness and glory. Praise me. How different is the Christ who is sovereign. He has all things in his hands. What a great summary of sovereignty. He has all power and authority. He is the ruling and reigning king. He is God. We recently considered Colossians 1. All things were created through him and for him. All things exist for him. He's before all things, and in him all things hold together. He's the King of kings and Lord of lords, and in some way that we cannot comprehend, reality itself holds together in him. All things are in his hands. And knowing that, what does he do with that? Verse 4. Picture this in your mind's eye. Pay attention to all the verbs. See who Christ is and what Christ does. John records this scene in such a brilliant and beautiful economy of words. The one with all things in his hands, the sovereign one, rose from supper. 
He laid aside his garments and taking a towel, tied it around his waist. Then he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel that was wrapped around him. Point number four. See the servant's glory, especially in his humility. See point four in light of points two and three. Don't leave those behind. Don't forget that he's all-knowing and all-sovereign. He is the highest, and here he gets the lowest. Here the king takes on the role of a servant. I titled this sermon, The Glorious Servant, and each point has had servant in it, but we haven't yet said why. Well, it's because of this. It's because of what he does in verses 4 and 5. Remember, this is the beginning of part 2 of John. We have concluded, concluded part 1, the book of signs. This is the beginning of part 2, the book of glory. And it starts with love, and it starts with a servant. But this, this is servant's work. This is the worst servant's work. I am not a fan of feet. I don't like feet. Feet are gross. Unless I am on a beach, you will never see my feet. You won't. They, of course, all wore sandals 2,000 years ago. Let's keep in mind, they hadn't advanced much beyond Iron Age technology. So we can't blame them for strapping a piece of leather onto the bottom of their feet and feeling pretty good about it. We have smartphones and spaceships. Surely we've advanced technologically beyond sandals. Come on, people. Feet are gross. And these feet were walking around uncovered in hot, dirty, unpaved streets all the time, which is almost as dirty as walking around the streets of New York City with uncovered feet all the time. I'll stop. I'm done. It's a joke. Wake up. But they know that feet are gross and dirty. They know that the feet are literally low. And they believed that this was a task reserved for the lowest to have to wash someone's feet. There's a spot in the, in, the Jew, in the Jewish, the Hebrew scriptures, the Jewish, coming later, the scriptures of Judaism in the Mishnah that forbids Jewish slaves from having to wash feet. It was that low. Only the lowest, Gentile slaves, could be forced to do such a humiliating task. Peers did not wash one another's feet. And we do not have a single example in the whole of Jewish or Greco-Roman literature of a superior washing the feet of an inferior. Except for this one. Except for Jesus. But this was, the feet washing in general was, was social protocol. It was the common courtesy of the day, right? You come in my house and you're coming off the train, please wash your hands in the sink. This is kind of like that. As a host, you're supposed to provide a servant to wash the feet of your guests as they came in from the dirty streets. Remember, they're, they're reclining, they're eating reclined on couches with their feet kind of out and close. You don't want dirty, smelly feet. And so it seems that this supper was attended only by Jesus and the twelve. seems that there's no one else there. And so you can kind of imagine, they, kind of, they walk into the upper room, and then, you know, by the door there's the basin of water, uh, there's the basin, the pitcher of water, and the towel. And you just got every single one of the twelve just kind of walks in and kind of probably glances at it and just goes to their seat. Probably not even considering that one of them should wash their master's feet, much less the feet of each other. 
And when you consider Luke's account of this meal, we get even more insight into their attitude at the time in contrast to Christ's. For in Luke twenty-two twenty-four, 24, he records that during the meal, a dispute arose among them as to which of them was to be regarded as the greatest. Now, I can't imagine that happening after the foot washing, so I assume that it's happening before the foot washing. And so we don't know this for sure, but it's not hard to imagine Jesus getting up in the middle of that stupid, sinful, prideful argument. How dumb that we argue with one another about how great we are. And we preen and we position ourselves and we try to demonstrate our, our superiority. It's, it's just so dumb, and yet we all do it. That's what they're doing, arguing about their greatness. Jesus stands up, lays aside his outer garments, takes the towel, gets low on the ground, touching and cleaning and drying the feet of the very men arguing about which of them is the greatest. Yeah, it had to be silence. It had to just be sitting there dumbfounded, I, I assume. We don't know how long this went on. We don't know where Peter was in the list. Had Jesus watched a couple, washed a few feet first? We don't, we don't know exactly. Um, but Peter, in perfect Peter fashion, just can't control himself. Verse 6, Lord, do you wash my feet? Verse 8, you shall never wash my feet. Impulsive, impetuous Peter. We should be so thankful for Peter. We should be so thankful that God records for us the repeated foolishness and failures of Peter and Christ's persistent patience with that Peter. My fifth point was going to be the patience of the servant. Right? How, how patient is he here with all of them, especially with Peter? How patient is he here with all of us, especially with me? Go back to verse 8. Jesus answered Peter, If I do not wash you, you have no share with me. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, not only my feet, but also my hands and my feet. Jesus said to him, The one who has bathed does not need to wash except for his feet, but is completely clean, and you are clean. Now, surprisingly, Jesus' Jesus's response to Peter there is actually one of the more debated parts of John's gospel. I don't have it all sorted out yet, but often the focus of verse 10 becomes kind of this, this strange, like, parsing out an explanation of our salvation. Something like, look, if you've already had a bath, that is, if you've been justified by me, well, then you don't need to be washed except for your feet. That is, you need ongoing sanctification by me. You've been forgiven and saved, but we're in a sinful, dirty sin world, and so our hearts still need the ongoing sanctifying, cleansing, washing of Jesus day by day. Of course that's true. I just don't, I'm not entirely sure that that's what this verse is about. I don't think Jesus is parsing out, parsing out justification and sanctification. I said it at the beginning. We'll turn the focus on us next week. The focus on these, in these verses is Christ. The focus of these verses is less on our salvation and more on his servanthood. The, the point is not to, to parse out all the different parts. of the, the point is he's coming to Peter and saying, unless I wash you, you have no part in me. It's me, Peter. Me. This is not about a physical cleansing, but a spiritual cleansing. And Jesus does that, not by getting low and washing our dirty feet, but by getting low and dying for our dirty souls. And this is the picture of that whole thing. He's showing us practically and graphically what he is about to do far more graphically. Jesus is putting his clean hands on their filthy feet 
showing us graphically how he is about to put our filthy sin on his very own clean person. 2 Corinthians 5.21, For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. That's what we're getting a picture of here. You know what text we're most seeing here? Was there one text that was going through your mind as we were reading this account? There's one passage that you should have thought of while I was reading the washing. I think that Paul must have had this scene in mind when he composed Philippians chapter 2. There are so many parallels between the washing here and Philippians 2. Paul writes in verse 6, Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking on the form of a servant. Jesus lays aside the outer garments. He wraps himself in the servant's clothes, in the towel. By being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself. He gets down on the ground. He washes their feet, representative of our sin, becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. That's John 13. That's the glorious servant. That's the glory of Christ revealed most clearly in the humiliation of Christ as the highest, all-knowing, all-sovereign God gets the lowest and becomes a servant. He, God, the King, became our servant to save us by taking on our filth and dying for us so that we could be washed, forgiven, and restored to fellowship with the holy God of life. See his glory here. See it in the combination of these four things. His love and humility and his omniscience and sovereignty. The humble, loving one is the all-powerful, all-knowing one. There's nothing else like this. There's no one else like him. See his glory, be drawn to him, give your attention and affection to him through what Edwards famously called this admirable conjunction of diverse excellencies. The highest got the lowest. For you, the lowest, the most powerful, the most loving towards you, the weakest, his enemy. Have you seen it? Have you really believed in this Christ? Preaching, and I'm still daily trying to figure it out, but, but preaching is meant to be personal, passionate pleading. Don't miss this. Don't reject this. Look at how great and gracious this Christ is. 1 John 3, 1 says, See, behold, look long at what manner of love the Father has given to us. We, we all learn to sing it as kids. Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. But do we? Do we really know? When I was in high school, there was a terrible, dumb TV series called Diary, not recommending it, but it was a sort of documentary of the everyday lives of celebrities. Uh, there are probably few ways that you could wa more waste your life than by being concerned with the everyday life of celebrities. I only mention the show because the tagline that the show opened with every episode was, you think you know, but you have no idea. Nicole knows it. We were pagans together. You think you know, but you have no idea. You think you know Christ's love. Oh, but you have no idea. Paul knows. And Paul knows that he has to pray for us to be able to know Christ's love. Love, Ephesians 3, 
Paul prays that we would be strengthened with power through the Spirit in our inner being. Why? Verse 18. That we, being rooted and grounded in love, may have the strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge. See, Paul knows that Christ's love is so great, so wide, so long, so high, so deep that you need God's own power to comprehend Christ's love for his own. We know that love is everything. Even our world superficially gets this. All you need is love, but this is it. This is the love that you are looking for. What if it's really this good? What if the creator God of the universe is really this good? If he is this Jesus on the ground washing people's feet about to die for them. How ought it to affect your day today? Your week this week, your life to know that Jesus, the all-knowing, all-sovereign God, Jesus, loves you like this. I get through life and the difficulty of life and people in large part in knowing that I have the affirmation of my earthly father, the affection of my wife, the adoration of my children. What else do I need? Well, a lot actually. And if you don't have that, you don't actually need it. Because even that, as wonderful as a blessing it is, I'm thankful for it every day, even that cannot satisfy and sustain me. It cannot save me. But this, this is the affirmation and affection and adoration of the all-knowing, all-sovereign God, Jesus Christ. This is everything. He is everything. He's the omniscient, sovereign, humble God of love. And if that's the case, then there's nothing more foolish than rejecting this God and rejecting this love. There's nothing left for you if you refuse to see and receive such love. Don't be Judas. Don't die because you refuse to give yourself up to this one who is love, who gave himself up to save sinners, this one who offers you life and fullness of joy. Let me close, bring it back together. Let's close with Lydia. Lydia loved books. She was a voracious reader. I love reading her books because I learn about her as I see what she underlines. I love reading other people's books and seeing what they underline. Um, but when I was doing that for this book, I had actually saved it and not opened it until this week. As I was going through it this week, it seems that she didn't make it to the end of this book. I have learned to recognize her underlining style. She was a circler. She did the whole thing. I was an underliner. I'm a pen guy. She was a pencil gal. Uh, but the last chapter she marked up was John 17, 13. And Boyce titled that chapter, The First Mark of the Church, Joy. And the very last thing that Lydia underlined in this book um, is, I can't know this for sure, but there's no underlining in the last 60 pages. And she was a voracious underline. It's all over the place. She underlines more than I did. So it seems that she did not finish the book at the end of her life. And so the last thing that she underlined was this. I was surprised to find how many times joy is associated with a mature knowledge of God's word. What a place to stop if that's where she stopped. Joy and a direct connection to a knowledge of God's word. This word that we just read, 
This word that is so important that is life because it reveals this Christ, this glorious servant who died that we might live and never died. Who died that Lydia, though dying, might live. This Jesus who is going to say in chapter 15 verse 11, these things that I have spoken to you, that's the word. I have spoken them to you that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. That's the goal. Joy. And it's joy through the word that is about this Christ. This joy. We're all pursuing happiness. We're all pursuing joy. We're seeing here that it's found only in Jesus. And it is a joy that Lydia found and had all the way to the end. Because she knew and loved this Jesus. And delighted in the word of this Jesus. He is the glorious servant who saves his sinful people. Look to him and love him and live. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your grace. Thank you for your help. Thank you for your word. Father, convince us that our joy is directly connected to our knowledge of your word. Because your word is no mere word. It is a living and active word. It is a word that contains this Christ. It is the word that uh, relates and reveals this Christ who is life. Father, we thank you for the glorious servant, your son, Jesus Christ. Father, may we see our sin for what it is. May we see the filth, the wickedness, the dirt, the darkness. And be stunned and amazed that God himself, that Christ came to take all that on. That we may be washed and restored to fellowship with you. That we may be counted clean and stand before you, counted as righteous. For we are clothed in the very clothes of this Christ. Father, all we need is a sight of his glory. We pray that your spirit would use your word to show us Christ and to grow our affection for him and to draw our attention more and more to him. I pray that you would do that now and in the days to come. Uh, show us Christ. We ask and pray this all in his name. Amen.